Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode, I'm joined by the writer behind Grange Hill, Brookside and Hollyoaks. He's known for tackling challenging storylines in his gritty portrayals of real life in Britain and is continuing this with his debut novel, High Bridge. He's, of course, Phil Redmond. Phil, welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Phil, you've written some of Britain's favourite television series. What was it like turning your hand from scripts to a novel? <laughs> More difficult than I imagined, actually. Why? Well, after spending th- over 30-odd years, you, you craft a script, and in that script you set out all the stage directions for the directors to know what's in your head. But you've yeah. got to, they've got to impart that to the actors, hope, hopefully. And then... After that, what you've got to concentrate then on is the action and the dialogue you know, to take the plot along. All the other stuff about the set, the clothes they're wearing, the hairstyle they've got, everything, you, you've already done. Because <laughs> the, the casting, you're looking for somebody who is empathetic with the character and has got something between their ears so that they can actually live with that character as it develops from week to week, year to year and things. And then there it is in front of you visually, so... When you come to write a novel, you've got to put all that on the page. <laughs> so, so I constantly found myself sort of thinking, God, this seems like a long sort of like boring section describing where they live. You know, can I, I'll just say like, uh, it's a great 1960s house we've got here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. And I, I say I'm really allowing everybody to treat me as the newbie, you know. And what prompted you to write a novel rather than another script well actually that comes on to the second half of it which is like how enjoyable it was to do because i just did not have to worry about those television regulators (laughs) (laughs) and it was nice just to be able to write the characters the way i'd always wanted to write television really and the content not worry about whether this was going to be, what time it's going to be transmitted. You know, is this going to be something that would influence a susceptible adult, you know? So it was great to be able to sit down and write for grown-ups, really, you know, and because uh, I think television's turned into a little bit of a kind of a Mary Poppins-type TV, you know, that's not everything too controversial. So it's great to be able to sit down and do something for grown-ups. Can't say it better than that. Phil, can you please give me a thumbnail sketch of who is in your novel and what it's about. Well, the the novel centres around um, a fictional northern town where two brothers, Joey and Sean Nolan, have grown up and live. And it's um, being sort of blighted by a drug problem. And their sister gets killed in a mugging attached to this and she's married to their best mate, Lou, who happens to be in the Special Forces. So one day, during the pub chat about someone needs to sort this out, Luke turns around and says, I'll do it. And from then on, we get the brothers working with the special forces to rid the town of the druggies. Let's hear from the audiobook of Highbridge. And this is from the prologue and describes the murder that sets the action of the novel in motion on a normal Friday evening in a very normal co-op car park. Like most people, Janie knew she was going to die. But like everyone else, she just didn't know when. She never imagined nor expected it to be outside the co-op. Like a lot of people, she was simply looking forward to a great Friday night out with her sister-in-law and gang of mates. So it stopped at the cash machine. She had just got back to her car and was fumbling for her keys when she felt the shove that sent her one way and her bag and keys the other. Lying sprawled on the ground, she saw the indicators flash 
heard the doors unlock and realised she was being mugged. As the engine started, she pushed herself up and leaned over the front of the bonnet, holding her hands out instinctively, perhaps in the vague hope that whoever it was would stop before running her down. But when her eyes locked with the wild, dilated ones peering over the nodding Buddha she kept on the dashboard, she knew there was no hope. The Peugeot 207's low-profiled front end did what it was designed to do and scooped her up to prevent her being run down. Before the car swerved right to throw her off, where she smashed her skull against the car park wall. This in itself might have been fatal, but the carjacker couldn't know this. But those wild eyes had seen hers, and her eyes had seen the face that contained them. That was why the car stopped, then reversed, at speed, to run her over. Then, just in case, the car jumped forward and crushed any remaining life out of Janie. Then, again to make sure, reversed. Then leapt forward over what was now nothing more than a lifeless shape. To escape. Swinging out into the high street and off into the night. The withdrawal receipt from the cash machine fluttered and blew in the backdraft, coming to rest against a lamppost that illuminated the place where Janie had died. The latest random casualty of the so-called War on Drugs. The receipt was for £45. It was all she had had. Just enough for a night out. Or a night's supply. Jenny never knew her killer. Neither did Buddha. Three years on. Nor did anyone else. Very powerful opening. That was Joe McGann reading an excerpt from... Highbridge. Phil, you're used to seeing your writing brought to life on TV, so what is it like to hear it as an audiobook, and did you cast the reader? <laughs> they send me a list of names with links to listen to people, and you know, you listen and you think, voice is too light, voice is too posh, voices, you know. And there were three guys I thought were really good, and one of them was actually Joe McGann. One of the McGann dynasty Clank, actors. Yeah. Um, I've worked with two of them. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, it was Joe was uh, my first choice to be Barry Grant in Brookside. Mm -hmm. And in those days, everybody had to have their equity card before they were allowed to do anything. And Joe didn't have his card. And although we were all new and the idea was, you know, just let new people in and everything, there was a, some political friction within the industry at the time. <laughs> So we couldn't get Joe an equity card and I ended up having Paul Usher as Barry Grant and so it was really, really interesting, really satisfying to come back and find that in the end the publishers made the decision out of those three and it was Joe who actually read the book. So to come in that full circle is really, really interesting. You, you're incredibly well known as a trailblazer when it comes to giving screen time to taboo topics. Zaman Maguire's heroin addiction in Grange Hill became one of the most memorable and controversial storylines in children's television and made headlines around the world, as well as warning a whole generation of people to just say no. And drugs are central to the plot of your first novel. One of the interesting things I've found as, as a storyteller was the fact that narcotics in some shape or form have been around ever since you know, man, you know, as in the species, yeah. has been walking the planet. Whether it was the natives chewing coca leaves in South America, you know, whether they were chewing gat out in Indonesia, there's always 
something that people seem to take to... Take, Get out of themselves. Yeah, you know, and in fact, if you just escape being eaten by a woolly mammoth, you probably need something <laughs> to... <you> know, <laughs> and I found it interesting looking over history there. We always end up with these so-called wars on drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we have alcohol and tobacco as two social drugs, and this comes, brings me back to the TV regulations because the regulations are constantly reminding you that although they're socially accepted, they're still addictive drugs, therefore you have to treat it responsibly. As a society, we've learned how to cope with that by through education. You educate your children. We've now learned the problems with tobacco and we're educating people on that. It's within our psyche. It's been around ever since we've been walking the planet. So how we think that a £50 million campaign or a £20 million campaign or a, a school project is going to go against the trillion-dollar well, drugs trade is ridiculous, really. So, you know, it's, we've got to take a different view to it all. So it's interesting that you, that you have expressed yourself to me as a moral zealot. Is that right? <laughs> uh, and in your writing, you focus on the darkest and the most troubled parts of, of, of society. So it's not that you have, been, you have been a participant in any of that yourself. You are looking from... The moral high ground well, and examining. Well, see, that's the danger, you see, because every time you do start having these conversations, that's the label that gets thrown at you. But when I started writing, I hadn't done that very uh, well at school. So I went back, recovered the A-levels, and I got myself a place in the University of Liverpool as a so-called mature student and did sociology and criminology and all these kind of things, which I thought would be useful to me as a writer. And it's actually... Partly that kind of uh, academic research, coupled with the empirical experience of living in a kind of run-down estate, going to a tough, comprehensive, seeing your friends out on the street, that's where it comes from. It's not. It's not really a high moral ground. You know, it's 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 about pragmatism. You know, and and I think actually I come back to everything and say I'm a pragmatic scouser. You know, I know what the world's like. Yeah, it's not like people would want it to be. It can be very harsh. But at the same time, it can be very romantic and very sentimental, you know. And I always come at it from the point of view, give the people the information, give them the education, give them the tools, and then make it's their decision. I just think it's kind of like that's the way we should educate people. And most, from the research I've done through Cross Grange Hill, Brookie and Hollyoaks, most of the problems we, we come across is because of the cutting of the drugs. It's because of the quality, you know. That's where the damage comes from. You know, we're looking at we're using the wrong lens really to look at the problem. It's not moral; it's pragmatic. Spoken like a true educationalist. <laughs> Glad you rose to the bait of my <laughs> zealoting you into that corner. Well, it's time Phil to move to your first object that shaped and inspired the writing of Highbridge. You couldn't bring it with you, but we have got a picture of it. How did the Weaver Canal Swing Bridge inspire your novel? These kind of bridges are they're kind of like iconic symbols of the industrial age in the in the north, the canals, you know, the the canal system, the world's first intranet really. They're scattered all over England, but in the north, you know, you can't go through a northern town without crossing one of these bridges. So that that's part of it. So if I was gonna create a fictional northern town, the approach to it would be across one of these bridges. And I like the idea that it's also a symbol there. Once that bridge is open and the road's closed, the community's cut off. 
And I, I kind of like that because we do tend to feel in our very sophisticated way now that we're all so integrated and we're all so cosmopolitan and all the rest of it. But actually, we're just a collection of villages and, you know, an urban sprawl is just a collection of urban villages. Everybody has their, this is us, you're them, mm -hmm. there's the line. And, you know, it, it's interesting that you find that now still a lot of northern towns, if these bridges go down, they're going to be isolated from one of their main routes, you know. The further north you go, the worse it gets, of course. So I kind of like this idea that if you were running a story which goes back to the black hats, white hats, Hollywood, you know, good guys fighting the bad guys, mm -hmm. and you want to ambush them at the pass, where do you get them? So you, you, you get them at the swing bridge. And if you can open that swing bridge, that's where you've got them. <laughs> so you've not been influenced at all by Nordic noir drama <laughs> called The Bridge? No, I'm afraid not. No. <laughs> So place is obviously very important in the novel, and the title mm. High Bridge is the name of the town where the story takes place. Why did you specifically choose a declining northern industrial town as your setting? Oh, because that's the canvas that you can comment on every social issue across Britain. Liverpool was the northern powerhouse of the 19th century. It was the empire's powerhouse. And so you find these great ironies that you spool on 100 years and everything people are trying to recreate, you think, yeah, yeah, we used to have that in the 19th century. Now, what happened? And so from when you start following that timeline about what happened, you see where a lot of the kind of social problems, social deprivation actually came from. And I talk about it in the book, about it being where industries exported, but the people are left behind. What you're left with is lots and lots of people. I mean, if you look at a big town like Liverpool, I mean, Port City... When all the car factories that were dotted around that port, when they all went, the housing estates that housed all the people working in those factories didn't go with them. So you end up with places like Speak, Halewood, places in Kirby where there was a massive industrial estate. Kirby was built specifically to service this industrial estate. Industry disappears and you're left with 70,000 people with nothing to do. So to me, it's kind of a, you know, you can jump across Warrington, Frodsham, uh, Oldham, Berry, they're all there. All these towns have these similar types of great history in the 19th century to rise, but a slow downward trajectory in the uh, 20th century. Highbridge could be any one of them. Really. Highbridge features two brothers, Sean and Joey. Sean is one of Highbridge's success stories, a businessman who runs a garden centre and champions anti-drugs initiatives. Let's meet him now preparing for an after-dinner speech in another extract from the audiobook of Highbridge. Breaking the chain. Yes, that would be the theme for tonight, Sean thought as he reached for his dress shirt. How we need to break the cycle of deprivation that leads people into petty crime and antisocial behaviour, that in turn condemns them to a life of missed opportunity and social prejudice. Once branded, how do you redeem yourself? Yes. He'd talk about his own life, and perhaps that of his siblings. How they had come from the wrong side of town, but had taken different paths. Both he and his younger brother Joe had passed the old 11+, and while he thrived at St Bede's, Joe didn't. Despite what Joe said about not hacking the academic bit, long disproved by breezing through his electrical qualifications, the truth, as Sean had included in his best man speech at Joey's wedding, was that he dropped out because he was a randy sod and didn't fancy turning gay. His sister Janie, on the other hand, he had found out later in life, had preempted any such decisions by deliberately failing the 11 plus so she wouldn't be separated from her friends, all of whom she stayed in touch with and all of whom turned up at the funeral. 
who was really the brightest of them all. Yes, Sean thought, his own life story from college pud, uni geek and accountant to hippie garden centre owner had always gone down well at the charity dinners, especially since his sister Janie's senseless death. Tonight was about yet another anti-drugs initiative. How many had he been to? Better detection, better prevention, better education, better medical help, better counselling. He'd given up counting, but the emerging pattern was obvious. Whatever people tried, it didn't seem to work. Usually because of two things, short-term thinking and independent action. Not thinking far enough ahead and therefore not providing adequate funding and trying to work in isolation. But there was never one reason for people getting into difficulties, so how could there be one solution? You see, your characters always say it better than you do. <laughs> Phil, your next object is connected to the other brother, Joey, an electrician. Can you please tell me what the object is that you brought in? <laughs> well, as everyone will know, every good electrician needs the requirements for electrical installations, and the latest one is the 17th edition. And this is the code that governs everything electrical in, in the UK. So it's what Joey has to learn, memorise, and commit to heart to doing everything he does in his day job. And this thing about... It's quite interesting because having been involved with academia... They often sit round the room and they're talking about the oh we need to upgrade the O's and A levels we need to upgrade the O's and A levels and it's another frustration the fact that we have still have this kind of vocational academic split no matter which way they try and put it but actual fact trying to become an electrician and trying to become a corgi registered high pressure plumber yeah. is far more academically challenging than trying to achieve a two one over or two, even a first over three years. You know. mm. Are you and a DIY a, man yourself? I am, yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, in case we get stuck with this, I brought along the uh, the other book that accompanies it, which is the Explained and Illustrated Edition. <laughs> <laughs> well, the two brothers are very, very different because they both want to rid the town of drug dealers. But whilst Sean organises charity events and lunches with local councillors, Joey decides to take an altogether more direct approach. Which of the two do you feel prefer? <laughs> well, that's, that's... Nail your colours to the mask. Yeah, they're right, it's privilege, isn't it? I yeah. suppose it's, um, it's amalgam, I suppose. It's a bit of both. I mean, Joey, I think, is a character. I think we'd all like to be really kind of direct. You see a problem, I'll sort that out, just go and do it. Right? It's why we end up with Arnie and Bruce in the movies, isn't it? You know, <laughs> you know? But on the other hand, you've got to have the West Wing too. So I think you really realise that, you know, you do need the political solutions and that's where the Sean character comes from. And that's from a side of me too that knows that, yeah, short-term action is great, but you do need long-term solutions. And, so, and to do that, you have to influence the networks to really make that change. And it's, it's again, frustrating. Another theme in the book, and a common theme for a lot of northern towns is the with that decline, economic decline has been the uh, loss of political control over their own lives as, as politics has centralised to London. Although there's a trend for devolution at the moment, that's still a frustration because you can't really bring about change unless you can control the policy and you can control the lawmaking. Because as we're, we're now in a situation where the law is so complicated 
that everybody is, is slightly unsure about how far they can and can't go in terms of open debate. You know, I mean, where where does a strongly held belief end and a hate crime begin? It's an, it, this is a, it's a new interesting dichotomy that we've brought into this. And so with Joey and Sean, it's, it, you can return to the black and white of the debate. You strike me in what you've been telling me as the Dickens of our age, in that you have <laughs> your career has been focused on the deprived and people in straitened circumstances, and yet you've made your own personal fortune out of that. Mm-hmm. How do you... How do I square that circle? How do you square that circle, yeah. Um, I suppose two things, really. One is the fact that I come with the great Scouse justice gene. You know, yeah. something's wrong, it needs fixing. It comes with that, and then it also comes with the other Scouse thing, which is knowing what you're worth. And so I, the platform I chose to contribute to these kind of social debates was television, and television's a marketplace. And I knew that what I was doing was actually valuable within that marketplace. And I, I learned this through the BBC as a public sector broadcaster, where I didn't make my fortune. <laughs> but then when I shifted across to Channel 4, which is a commercial, that was a commercial setting, so there was a market rate. So I was very clear about how and where my market rate should be. And so that's how, and that's where the market paid, paid back. Then you get to a point where you find, actually, I can make a difference by just saying yes and just enabling people to do something. And it doesn't need a big intervention. It could be just a couple of hundred pounds here, a couple of thousand pounds there, or a donation to the university or a donation to the museum. It enables you to allow other people to reach what they're trying to do. And sometimes just turning up at an event because people see that you care. I'm not talking about a red carpet or BAFTA. I'm talking about yeah. an anti-drugs initiative in Kirby or something. It's one continuum, I think. We heard about Janie's murder in the opening of the book. And Janie's husband, Luke, is another central figure. And his whole world is turned upside down when Janie is killed. Let's hear from him in an extract from the audiobook of Highbridge. It was like a classic teen movie. It wasn't Janie's dad he had to get permission from, but her brother, his best mate, Joey. Perhaps that was why Janie had been attracted to him, living not with Joey but under his protection. Anyone who went near her was quickly frightened off. Big Brother was always watching. Until Joey's fourth child, Lucy's christening, and Janie had kept on and on and on at him to dance. She wanted to have fun, enjoy life, and she wanted him to do the same. She told him she'd always enjoyed him coming to the house, ended up longing for it, and then, without Joey realising it, engineering it. You could get Luke to help. You could ask Luke. Luke wouldn't mind. And he didn't. Whatever it was. She was the first person who saw just him. Not a label. He was neither a tearaway nor a hooligan. Just a nice guy looking for someone to love him. And she did. She told Joey before she told him. She then gave him a reason for living. A belief that he could, after all, like Joey with Natasha, change things. They could change things and have a great life together. Four years of being an item, three years of marriage, and then she was snatched away. Senseless, painful, agonising. And the reason for living was replaced by a reason for killing. 
Phil, have, what, what has so struck me since we began talking is that in the way that you write, that there never seems to be any indication that you would ever be short of something to say. <laughs> have you ever been afflicted by writer's block? <laughs> no, I haven't, actually. Um, I, I think when I, when I was growing up as a child, I, I always would watch a movie or watch a television program. When it would finish, I'd always think, what would they do now? What would happen next, you know? And every episode of every one of the shows was not the end of something. It was the backstory for what was going to come next, you know? And that's the way the mind works. So no matter what... And also this thing about we need stories, we need stories. It's a voracious machine. It just mm -hmm. constantly... So a character arrives in a car on the, on the, on the close, say, for example, yeah. and it's okay. So he might just be coming to say, as in one episode, oh, my God, Charlie's dead, you know, so shock or uh, moves on. But it's kind of like, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, how did he find out, right? So where was he when he was acting? Who is he, anyway? And uh, what kind of journey did he take? And it's a kind of, well, he could have just been told, oh, Charlie's dead, go and tell Bobby. Oh, okay, yeah. But then it could have been like, oh, my God, we've got to find... Where is Bobby? We don't know where Bobby is. Let's go to Bobby. He's going there, and he drives along, and then there's an accident in front of him, and it's like he's got this amazing story to tell, and, he, and yet he can't get past this accident in front of him. So what does he do? Does he abandon his car? Does he go... You know, so, you know, so that's the way the mind that's works. That's the way the Redmond that's mind the way the works. Redmond works. Now, there's a box right next to you on, yeah. <laughs> on your left. Yeah. Please describe it. Yeah. Well, this is the standard British Army issue daily ration pack and in the book we where the guys are up on the hill sniping uh they bring these with them because when they're out they can sit for 10 12 14 days may i have a look inside it yeah you can indeed thank you and this has everything you need yeah to keep you going in combat for a day how many calories Seven thousand calories you know. that's what you need a day is it yeah for breakfast like astronaut food, all in packs. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually quite nice. It's got the great stuff, like the boiled sweets. It's just fantastic. <laughs> but it's full of ironies too, which I put in the book. Which is, it's a British Army ration pack, you know. But it's got it's got packs in there that are made in Denmark, but the food's cooked in Thailand or something. <laughs> it's, kind of like, it's a bit strange. However, global. You know. So your character Luke has an army background. He's returned from fighting abroad to find that there's not much call for number one snipers at the job centre. Yeah. So his military training is crucial to the plot. What sort of research did you do when writing this part of the novel? Well, again, that's something which uh, over, over the years we've kind of done, we've touched on these stories. So I've managed to build up a kind of network of friends who are either part of or have been part of the special forces so it's the kind of stuff that you kind of pick up talking to them and do you keep uh, notes i mean do you concept or do you mentally think god when i'm speaking to this person i've got to remember all of this um i i don't uh, i'm not a great diary scribbler you so know? you're a blotter brain it yeah. just absorbs in yeah i describe writers as, as uh, sponges you know the thing right. they go around absorbing stuff and at the right time you squeeze it all out when you, when you need it but i'll do things like if i'm reading somewhere or reading the newspapers if there's an article which I think, oh, that's interesting, that touches on what we're doing, I'll then cut that and then scan it, put it on the computer. And then the best tool ever invented for writers is Google. And so that's it. There's very, there's very little these days that you, can find, that you can't actually find through research. But it does help to actually have a group of people who can point you in the right direction. And the other area which I think I used 
used to think get ideas from as I did do a geeky thing like read new scientist and economist and you find the trends you know they're, they're going to come they start talking about something and then 12 to 18 months later the big papers will start thinking about it and then six to eight months later the medium-sized papers will think about it and then another six months later tabloids will be on to it and that's when it's in the high street so if you're planning programs like Brookie Hollyoaks or even writing a novel you're trying to find the stuff that's going to be there two years ahead. You know? So anticipating the zeitgeist. Yeah, so is this yeah. still 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration hard graft? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, you, you've got to put luck in there as well. Do you write every single day? Not every single day, no. It tends to come in um, spurts. You know, sort of, uh, it sort of bulls around up there for a while. But as soon as I get an idea, I tend to know where it's it's going to go. Mm-hmm. When I started writing this hybrid, which is the opener, I knew where novel three would be because because it's there's a logical progression of people's lives and stories and things. And if you mention the fact that one of the parents has got dementia, well, you know that that's on a particular trajectory, you know. Um, if you're going to take on drug dealers, you know, they don't just go, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> you won. Okay. You know, I'm sure I'm sure what's now you sorted it out. That's right, you know, right. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> so Luke moves from fighting in the Middle East to fighting the war on drugs on the home front, and here he is in an extract from the audiobook of Highbridge with his gun trained at the local fish and chip shop. Eventually the scope came back on its intended target, now finishing off his nightly cleaning routine and yes, putting out his box of special forks, just below the counter. Below the one already open on the countertop. No one was going to help themselves to the specials. Another hour and the banker would arrive to stand in the alley with the stack of marked notes and the users would start arriving to convert their hard-earned or easily stolen cash. Luke put Fat Chops' head in the crosshairs. It would blow apart like a ripe melon. If the bullet hit him. The problem was that it was going to have to be a cold snatch shot. No chance to readjust. When they had those five seconds, they needed to make sure he was stationary and no one else would walk into the shot. He moved the scope down to Fat Chops' torso, then grinned. That's too big to miss. Just as he did, the high-vis jacket of the woman from the community centre appeared in the scope. Exactly what they wanted to avoid. Phil, your next object is an iPad. What part does this play in Highbridge? Well, the iPad is, I mean, everybody is familiar with the iPads and things, but I used it to demonstrate how, again, technology's moved on and how people can actually become a lot more mobile and a lot more flexible with where and how they work. And for Joey, we're on there, it's the 17th edition of the electrical installations. It's all the wiring diagrams he needs to look at. And he's working away in London, they send him up to the next week's tasks with the wiring diagrams of the job schedule and he can study that on the train and it's the same with Sean in the in the garden centre that's his portable office he carries around with it you know mm-hmm. so he can sit and have his breakfast and look at the newspapers but he can also check all the daily reports all the all the all the, uh, the orders and work out the schedules for the week and then of course send emails to himself to remind himself to do things so it, it was just this and also the intergenerational tool you know where that can be the focal point of the entire family, you know, by using WhatsApp or Instagram or whatever, you can keep up with the family, but it's it's still not the same as being at home, really. Highbridge is a town with a very dangerous underbelly, everything from muggings and drug dealing to child grooming and sex abuse. 
Can it be quite difficult and depressing to write about this underworld? I don't ever feel depressed about it because I'll pick it up on your uh, trying to label me earlier as a moral crusader. <laughs> I love you for being a moral crusader. <laughs> All hail to you. Uh, if you... If you follow that path, which is like, this is a story I want to tell, this is an issue I want to tell, and here's a solution I want to offer, it might not be the right solution, but it, at least it's a solution that you can debate and move on from. That's what your drive is. So you don't get depressed because you know, you know you're on a track, you know, and you're going to show this problem, but then you're going to talk through the debate and then hopefully offer a solution that people can then debate and move on from there. What was the town like where you grew up? Actually, it wasn't. I mean, again, this is an interesting point because it was fine. I didn't think I was deprived. I didn't think I was missing out on anything. I had quite a good sort of loving home, short of cash. It was tough out on the streets. You had to always be able to stand your ground. You had to be able to protect yourself. But when now I go back and look at the stats and think, oh, my God, I lived in the most deprived area of Britain, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I think uh, all these things were around. I mean, the drug issue was not as big as it was, despite what the media say, the drug issue wasn't as big as it was as it is now, uh, because the networks are more so much more sophisticated now. Um, but the guy, you knew the guys who were doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, you knew who the sharks were, who you didn't actually want to get involved in. You crossed the road when they came, yeah. and again, it's all that part of the education that you grew up with. You know, people would, and I was allowed to play out in the street and all the rest of it. And you learn all these things out there, so. Every writer is autobiographical in some shape or form, but we never say which, you know. But I think you have to write from your own life experiences. Okay. Let's hear a final extract from the audiobook of Highbridge. Joey's wife Natasha wonders about the best course of action. I'm not sure what I'm thinking, she began. Part of me, I, I don't know whether it's the maternal thing, whether it's right or wrong, wants to just tell you to get on with whatever you and Luke are up to. Another part is saying, I'm losing my mum, so sod it. Who cares about those scum? Another, probably the sensible grown-up part, is with your Sean about trying to sort it out through some form of community action, or... She saw him react negatively at the mention of this huggy-feely stuff, as he always called it. But she palm-punched his shoulder and hardened her eyes. You are going to listen, especially if you are home for good, she continued. I am. Joey immediately replied, holding her shoulders, gently, for reassurance. Then perhaps you will have more of an influence on Tanya, like you've been saying, getting her to be more careful. She cradled his face in her hands, this time asking for reassurance. But it wasn't coming. And what happens when the boys get older? It's touched us twice, I don't want a third time. And to emphasise the point, he took her hands and intertwined them with his own. It's like some form of cancer, Nat. And someone's got to cut it out. Joe McGowan reading an excerpt from the audiobook of Highbridge. So this brings us to your last object, something that's used repeatedly in the novel. Why have you brought a pay-and-throw phone with you? It's, a, it's another symbol of how the cops and the surveillance... You know, they give you the impression they've got everything covered. Right? You know, so they put cameras everywhere, you know... They, sort of going more and more uh, regulation to look at people's emails and everything. But the simple fact is, is that you can walk into a supermarket and buy one of these things for a 
10 or 15 quid, mm -hmm. you know, and it's got enough credit on it for you to make a couple of calls. Untraceable. Untraceable. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that you buy these paying throwers, as they, as they call them in here. You use them for a day, bin them, move on to the next one. And then even if the intelligence services do manage to get them and start piecing them together, mm -hmm. they use gibberish, you know. So it's just if you get 300 random letters, it's a pocket dial. But that means I've seen what you're doing. So, you know, when they're on a the hill looking down to an observation post at someone walking along and they, they're walking along, then they're, the part of the code will be like, oh, I'll stop and I'll, I'll look like I'm sending a text. That means they're on my left, right? Uh -huh. And so when I was looking at his phone, he then gets three random numbers down, which could be a pocket hour, which says, we've seen you, we know where they are. It's as simple as that, you know. So there, there have obviously been so many technological advances since you began writing. Yeah. And you've explained how, obviously, open up new lines in a crime novel. Do you think that today's levels of surveillance make it more difficult to keep a certain level of mystery? Uh, no, I don't, because I think it's just more... It's, it's, it's a chess game. It's just more of a chess game all the time. And the more you know about how the surveillance works, the more you can play it back. So... Again, in the book, it's kind of like, okay, so you've got number plate recognition. And one of the easiest things to do, go to the airport long-term car park. The very name says, whoever owns that car has gone away for a few days. <laughs> so, silver Vauxhall, license plate, so-and-so, so-and-so, right? You go off, nick a silver Vauxhall, clone the plate. You can drive around, it's perfectly legitimate. Fred needs paid his insurance now. <laughs> But, and that might be a wrinkle I'll use in the future books. But that car is legit. So it can drive through any all the number plate recognition systems in the world. You know, it won't be recognised. So, you know, it is... I think it's it's actually just... It's as, as interesting as it's always been, you know, to, to play around with these So things. you think the crim is always ahead of the cop? They have to be because <laughs> the cops are there to create, you know, catch criminals, right? Prevention's OK, but the reason debt is catch criminal, therefore the criminal has to be ahead to actually create the crime in the first place. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like the Brinks Matt robbery, isn't yeah. it? And, and the the, the garden thing recently. You know? Yeah. And but what is powerful though, and I think I make the point in the book, is that if they really want to catch them, they can. If they if they decide to put enough resources around people, they can. And a lot of it is not high tech. It's just walking into a, you know, the old thing like in the Sweeney and the mind and all that, walk into a pub, what's going on then, Johnny? You know, oh, I heard this fellow was doing such and such a thing, governor, you know, right? And it's, it's all about intelligence and people talking to each other, you know, so you can still pick it up and it's, it's just a, a great cat and mouse chess game all the time. Now, there's always going to be crime. The thing is about, it's reducing the risk of crime and one of the great sociological things is that if you've got someone looking at you you're very unlikely to commit a crime. Right? So again, it's the same thing, that village mentality, wherever you go, someone knows you. And then the other thing is, is the give someone something meaningful to do. And if you can't give them a job, mm -hmm. find something else within the community, whether it's through volunteering or whether it's through helping out or whether it's a sense of responsibility, like, why don't you be the lollipop man? Yeah. yeah, right. And by giving people something, it's called the alternative pathway to status gratification. Those two things, constantly being watched by the community and being having something meaningful to do with your life, they're the two things that reduce crime a lot. But you'll always get 
someone who'll want the extra pickled egg when the barman's not looking in the pub. <laughs> the world, according to St. Phil Redmond. <laughs> well, is there another novel in the pipeline? Because you said that you already have the, the yeah. end story for th- three down the line. Yeah, well, I think the I'm, I'm two-thirds of the way through the follow-up to this one. and so you're a publisher's dream. You don't <laughs> begin the novel saying, well, I don't know how this is going to end. You've keep already... talking, keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, because I think Luke says it in the book, which is that they do... This is what we ask our special forces and our armed services to do. They go in, sort out a problem, pacify it. Then they hand it to the politicians. It's easy to win the war, difficult to win the peace. And what he says is that you've got a certain amount of time now, Joe, but they'll be back. And what you do then? So the next novel is, what happens then? So the working title is Keeping the Peace. And then once that's done, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's got to resolve itself in some form. You know, good guys got to win, obviously, haven't they? And then the third novel is then, well, actually, how are those two novels being involved in this fight against drug dealers and then Sean's fight against the policymakers who are trying to block aspirations within the town? Over these two novels, what happens in that third novel? And they find Janie's killer in the third novel. (laughs) Can't say better than that. (laughs) Phil, thank you very, very much for giving up your time today. And I think that you must be the publisher's dream that you just have (laughs) ongoing stories and there's never an end. Long may you tap away, sir. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) Thank you. New from Penguin Random House Audio. Even the Dead is the latest thriller from acclaimed author John Banville's crime-writing alter ego, Benjamin Black. Pathologist Quirk works in the city morgue, watching over Dublin's dead. When he starts to investigate a murder victim, he finds every trace of her has been wiped away. Quirk finds himself drawn into a long-buried conspiracy that involves his own family... But it's too late to go back now. The dead will be heard. When Quirk entered the hospital, his palms were damp and his heart was thumping. It was like the feeling he used to have at the end of summer when the new school term loomed. Then he caught the familiar smell of medicines, bandages, disinfectant and other nameless things. A new girl at reception took no notice of him but smiled at St. Clair. Their footsteps rang on the marble stairs, going down. And now, here were the known corridors, the walls that were painted the colour of snot and the toffee-brown rubber floor tiles that squealed underfoot. His office reeked of stale cigarette smoke, and, he was glad to note, of him, too, even after all this time. He touched the back of the swivel chair behind his desk, but felt too shy to sit down in it yet. He tossed his hat at the hat stand, but missed, and his hat fell down at the side of a filing cabinet. St. Clair retrieved it for him. A big window gave on to the dissecting room, and a shrouded form on the slab. All right, Quirk said, taking off his wrinkled linen jacket. Let's have a look. He needed no more than a few seconds, turning the corpse's drum-tight skull to the light, to see that St. Clair's suspicions had been well-founded. The dent above the left ear was the result of a deliberate and savage blow. He didn't know how he knew, and certainly there was nothing scientific about the conclusion. Like Sinclair, 
He just had a feeling, and he trusted it. Even the Dead is available now on iTunes and Audible.